Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a weekly podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tolhurst, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at this week's biggest political stories with fellow Politics Home reporters and special guests from across Westminster. I'm joined by Politics Home's political reporter, Noah Hoffman, and I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Johnson from the Institute for Fiscal Studies to reflect on Rishi Sunak's spring statement and whether it deals with the cost of living crisis and if he really is the tax-cutting Thatcherite Chancellor he claims to be. I'll also be getting Labour's response to Wednesday's statement from the Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves, who will tell us what they would do differently to try and shield households from the inflationary pressures building in the price of fuel, energy and goods. And we'll also discuss what comes next for Sunak with the Treasury Select Committee Chair Mel Stride, who tells me what he plans to ask the Chancellor when he appears in front of the committee on Monday. So let's begin with what was actually in the spring statement. Paul, what measures did Sunak announce that are going to ease the pressure on households as the cost of living rises? So the specific announcements in the spring statement, there weren't actually that many of them. There's five pence off the price of a litre of petrol and diesel, relatively modest given increases in the prices recently. There's a change to national insurance contributions, which will raise the point at which you start to pay them, which will offset for low to middle earners the increase in the rate of national insurance contributions that was announced last year year. A bit further into the future, there was an announcement of a cut in the basic rate of income tax a couple of years down the road. But in terms of announcements actually in the spring statement, there wasn't a great deal else. Though to be fair, the Chancellor did come up with a pretty substantial package just a month ago in September, giving £200 off energy bills, repayable for everybody and £150 rebate from council tax for 80% of people, those living in band D and below. And it is probably important to think about everything in the round, not just what was announced on Wednesday. Yeah, indeed. Obviously, you know, a lot of that stuff that was announced earlier this year, it feels as though events have kind of taken over a bit from that. Noah, what was the kind of the reaction that you you got from some Tory MPs to to the measures that were announced yesterday? So I contacted quite a few Tory MPs from cross section of the party from different ideologies and different age groups. And the consensus, what I found was that there was generally a, a sort of mild positivity. People thought that the policies were a step in the right direction and seemed to be embedded in conservative ideology. But that mindset really contradicts with the front page headlines we saw today and the sort of reaction from think tanks, the likes of the Resolution Foundation, who said, thank you, Rishi, for your policies, but 1.3 million people are still set to be plunged below the poverty line. So I think that was quite interesting discord there. Some MPs I spoke to did caveat that they thought Rishi Sunak will, if not now, in the very near future, need to go a little bit further. But there was no reaction of the kind that we saw editorials in newspapers come out with. Mm. Yeah, and so Paul, one of the big things as well like, was the the national insurance threshold hike and also the pre-announcing a tax cut by the end of the parliament. It's been sort of more than 24 hours now. Do you have any kind of sense of how you could explain logically doing those two policies at the same time? Not really. <laughs> it is quite frustrating. And this is something that chancellors of all shades have been doing for the last... 50 years, actually, which is to continually reduce rates of income tax whilst increasing rates of national insurance. The last time a main rate of income tax was increased was in the early 1970s, whereas the national insurance rate has been increased time and time and time 
again. Now, why is that, in my view, a problem? Well, national insurance is only paid by people in work. It is not paid on pension income. It's not paid on unearned income, be that dividends or um, or rental income. So it drives a wedge between different rates of tax on different forms of income, which is both inefficient from an economic point of view and inequitable in that it treats similar people differently. It clearly favours, relatively speaking, people over pension age compared with people of working age. And an increase in income tax rates is more progressive than an increase in national insurance rates. So for all of those reasons, economically, I think it's very hard to think of a case for increasing national insurance and cutting income tax. Politically, clearly, it's a different story. Mm. You, I think you, in your analysis of, of the overall statement, you said that he is implementing some sort of quite progressive policies, but it feels as though that element of it is quite regressive in a, in a sense. Well, no. If you take the tax changes altogether, they're overall progressive in the sense that uh, national insurance takes more money from high earners than it does from low earners. And national insurance change is a big change. The income tax rate change is a smaller change. And when you take account of the other tax policy, which is the freezing of income tax allowances on the higher rate threshold, that also put all of that together. And actually, rather consistently with his predecessors, Mr. Sunak is taking a fair chunk of money from the highest earners, despite what you might think about what's happened over the last 11 or 12 years. The top three or four or five percent of the earnings income distribution have been hit really hard by this set of conservative chancellors. I'm not saying that that's in any sense wrong in the way that I'm saying that, but it is something I think is not appreciated. So overall, the set of policies that we've had put in place over the last 12 months by Rishi Sunak are pretty progressive, pretty redistributive. But in the medium run, they take quite a lot of money away from people because this is a substantial set of tax rises. Mm, indeed. And, you know, he was very keen to talk about the national insurance threshold rise and the income tax, but he probably less inclined to talk about one of the things that was buried down there, which was the changes to student loan payments. Noah, what did you sort of dig out of the figures there around that? Yeah, so what we sort of saw buried in the spring statement, and this policy had been revealed earlier by the I newspaper, is that the threshold with which students will have to begin repaying their student loans is going to be moved from £27,295, which it currently sits at, to £25,000. Also, the time frame with which graduates at that point will have to repay the loan has been extended by 10 years from 30 to 40. I think this was an interesting policy choice because, again, it's not targeting people who can afford (laughs) to have disposable income reduced. Students, graduates tend to be people on lower incomes. And so why Rishi Sunak has implemented this policy now, I think, is questionable. And I think a lot of students will find it perhaps a bit unfair. So we know the president of the National Union of Students, Larissa Kennedy, described it as a disgrace. And I think you'd be hard pressed to find students who disagree with that. (laughs) Paul, what was your take on the on the change of student to uh, student loan repayments? Well, I don't think students are alone in um, not liking things which make them worse off. In terms of the the changes, I, I, I think the government was backed into a little bit of a corner given where we were with the student loan system. The um, high rate of interest was extremely unpopular, and the government decided to reduce the rate of interest quite 
significantly. Now, that is unpopular, but but one of its effects was actually to make the student loan system quite redistributive. It meant that high earners paid quite a lot more over their life than low earners. So getting rid of that actually cost the government a bunch of money. And the only way of making up for that was to reduce the threshold at which people start to pay, not dramatically, but significantly. And that, that will appear like a tax increase to recent graduates. The extension over 40 years helps with the public finance numbers that the Chancellor has produced. But I have to say, I think that is, should we say, ambitious to be um, talking about what the student loan system will look like in the 2060s, given that we've um, changed the parameters three or four times within the last decade. So I wouldn't take that part of the package at all seriously. No, you also earlier talked about the, the fuel duty increase. Um, you said that you didn't think that it was very likely that that would be a temporary thing. You, what are your thoughts? Do you think that's unlikely to be added back on in March next year? Yeah, the fuel duty is cut by five pence a litre. Now, that is explicitly supposed to be temporary. It's proved politically impossible to do anything in an upward direction to fuel duty for the last 12 years. And indeed, the last time this was tried when fuel prices were very high about uh, 10, 11 years ago or so. The then-Chancellor George Osborne said he was going to introduce a fair fuel stabiliser by which um, fuel duties would go down when prices were high and go back up again when prices were low. Well, they went down, but they never went up. More seriously, we haven't even had a rise in line with inflation for 12 years. So we've already had, before this, a more than £8 billion cut to fuel duties since 2010. So I think it'd be quite hard to politically get that five pence back. But the public finance numbers also assume, as they always assume, because this is supposedly government policy, that not only will that five pence come back, but uh, it will be increased in line with RPI inflation next year. Well, that is something that has been built into the public finances every year for the last 12 years and has never actually happened. So I can't see that happening at all. No, no, no. Obviously, the Chancellor was quite keen to publicise this after he gave his spring statement. He went down to a a Sainsbury's in South London and was pictured sort of filling up himself. But I think we found out today that actually um, it wasn't actually his car. It was a Sainsbury's worker whose car it was. What did you you make of that as a kind of a, a, a publicity stunt yesterday? As a publicity stunt, I thought that it was very embarrassing. And quite frankly, I don't understand what was going through the mind of the SPAD who advised it. Because obviously, journalists, the cheeky people that we are, we were going to inquire when we saw Rishi filling up a Kia, we thought, right, a millionaire's not going to be driving a Kia. Let's be realistic. <laughs> it's got a Bentley hidden away somewhere. Obviously, during a cost of living crisis, he can't have that out on display. <laughs> um, and I think the fact that it was that it was a car that belonged to a Sainsbury's employee as well, just the optics of it are really not ideal. And I think it just adds even more to that image that Rishi is sort of trying to distance himself from quite desperately, that he's not this out of touch, very wealthy man who doesn't really have a clue what the hardest hit in society are going to experience as a result of this cost of living crisis. Yeah, I thought it was quite emblematic, perhaps, of how the whole kind of overall spring statement went. I mean, you know, you've covered a lot of budgets over the years, uh, Paul, you know, they often sort of start to fall apart on days two and three, but it feels as though this one has started to get undone quite quickly. And, and what did you kind of make of the, the sort of the gap between Sunak's rhetoric of being a tax cutting chancellor and actually what the figures in the OBR show is going to happen by the time of the end of this parliament? I think it's a shame because I think the chancellor has really sort of not helped himself by 
talking a lot about being a tax-cutting chancellor and by talking about tax cuts that he's putting in place. But the truth is he just has no choice other than to raise taxes. And he has raised taxes and he's raised them really quite a lot. And actually, I don't think that's the wrong thing to do at all, given the state of the public finances and given the need to spend money on the health service and so on. I think the correct thing for him to say is, I really want to keep taxes down as low as I possibly can. At the moment, as low as I possibly can, I'm afraid, is going to mean higher than taxes are now. And there's a reason for that. You know, the economy's growing slowly. We've been through COVID. We've got a huge amount of money to spend on the NHS and so on. After this statement, we're going to be poorer than we expected to be. And if you want public services, that means we'll have to take a bit more of your money. Now, that, that is a truthful way of describing what he's having to do. And I'm sure he is absolutely open and honest in saying he really wants to keep taxes down as low as he can. But what he shouldn't, it seems to me, be saying is a tax-cutting chancellor, because he won't be a tax-cutting chancellor. I mean, maybe if he stays in position for the next 12 years, he might find some way of doing it, though even then I'd be surprised. But if he's a one-term chancellor, there is zero probability that he will actually be a tax-cutting chancellor. I completely agree with Paul and I think it all does come back down to that sort of ideological obsession that's engulfed so many corners of the Conservative Party with really stating their credentials as a Tory, as someone who is anti-taxes. But as Paul said, making cuts to the extent that Rishi Sunak would like in his wildest dreams is just not viable right Mm. now. And I think strategically, it would just be so much better if he admitted to that and explained that to the public. But I think there are a lot of restless backbenchers who are very much tied to their ideological roots and their conservative forefathers who do not want to see that happen. And and he's playing into that. Yeah, there's a kind of feeling that perhaps this uh, spring statement was the kind of intended audience was less the public in general, but actually more sort of conservative backbenchers. One of the things that you you picked up on, Paul, is the the lack of support for kind of the lowest earners. And and do you think that he is going to have to maybe come back and do more sort of support perhaps if we see this crisis deepen and we perhaps see the the energy prices creep up higher ahead of just waiting until the budget later in the year? Yeah, I mean, the, the lack of support he provided, I think, was one very specific omission from the statement, which was anything to increase the rate of welfare benefits, which are only going up by 3.1% next month in line with inflation as it was last September, when that inflation over the next year is going to average 8% and will be higher actually for people on benefits because they spend such a large fraction of their budget on energy and food. Now, to be fair, again, he did give a flat rate set of money in February, which as a fraction of people's income is particularly valuable to those on the lowest incomes. But it is the case that people who are on dependent on benefits will be worse off the next financial year than this. And it would not have been that hard for him to have provided them with some more help simply by saying that he will increase the, the rates of universal credit, the rates of other social security benefits by instead of 3.1%, he might he could have gone to 5%, he could have gone to 8%. And it needn't have been a long-term cost either, because he could have pulled that back next year when the inflation comes out of the system. So I was genuinely baffled as to why he didn't do that. I think a lot of the criticism that he's had would have dissipated had he done that. And in addition, he would have helped those who are most in need of the help. So that, that for me, was the bafflement of this whole episode. 
The shadow chancellor, Rachel Reeves, said the Conservatives have become the party of high taxation because they are the party of low growth, in her response to Sunak's statement, as Labour continued to call him the high-tax chancellor. I spoke to Reeves earlier and began by asking her what her party would have done differently. I think there's two main things that I take out of the spring statement. The first is that despite everything that Sunak said, this is a tax-raising government, a tax-raising chancellor, not a tax-cutting one. And if you look at the numbers, whether it's from the Office Budget Responsibility or the Resolution Foundation, they say that at the end of this parliament, even with the changes to national insurance and the income tax reduction, seven out of eight working people will be paying more in tax, not less. That is, I think, a key thing from yesterday's spring statement. The second is living standards are falling at their sharpest rate since records began in the 1950s. And you take those two things together, a collapse in living standards and the Chancellor taking more in taxes, that shows to me what a missed opportunity this spring statement was. This should have been a spring statement to put money back in people's pockets. And and what we find is that this government is still continuing with tax increases at a time when families and pensioners and businesses too are really struggling with all these increased costs. Mm. I mean, Sunak did announce some measures such as the 5p reduction in in fuel duty. You said it was a missed opportunity. What else would you have liked to have seen the government announce in in terms of helping out? There was obviously nothing specifically on energy. Would you have liked to have seen something on that? You know, of course, there were small measures in in the budget and some bigger measures that we've been calling for, like the reform of national insurance, for example. But it is a case of giving with one hand and taking much, much more with the other. And I think the Office of Budget Responsibility says that taxes have been raised by £6, is only given £1 back. So that's the sort of scale of the giving with one hand and taking much, much more, six times much more with the other. The key thing that I wanted to see yesterday in the spring statement was help for people with their gas and electricity bills, because in just six days now, gas and electricity bills are going to be going up by an average of 54%. I mean, that is unprecedented and it's going to cause real pain for an awful lot of people. What I wanted to see was the Chancellor announcing a windfall tax on the big profits being made by North Sea oil and gas companies and channeling that money back in to keep bills low for everybody else. And that's why I've said that VAT should come off domestic gas and electricity bills And there should be a big expansion of the warm homes discount to ensure families and pensioners on more modest and the lowest incomes are given that additional support they need. The Chancellor is stuck with his buy now, pay later scheme, a compulsory loan from October this year, but then sees people's bills higher for five years after that to pay back that loan. That is not the support that people need. A windfall tax to keep bills low would have been the right policy announcement yesterday. Yeah, I mean, we're looking at potentially the, the price cap going up again later this year. Do you think that Rishi Sunak is going to have to come back and come up with some additional things? Do you think he can't wait until the budget? Or do you think as the summer goes on that he's, he's actually going to have to come back to the House and give another statement and update things? 
it is really staggering what is happening with gas and electricity bills and buried in the I think the small print of the Office of Budget Responsibility document yesterday was a prediction that the average gas and electricity bill for a family will go up to I think around £2,800 from October this year. And that the problem is, is that the Chancellor keeps coming with sort of too little, too late. A month ago, he announced some help with bills, but it's this compulsory loan scheme that I've already mentioned. Yesterday, he had his spring statement, but still not rising to the scale of the challenge. You know, a Chancellor is only supposed to do one budget a year, but this Chancellor has to keep coming back because what he announces is so underwhelming. And I think that it is highly likely that in the weeks and months ahead, the Chancellor is going to have to revisit all of this. And mm. I hope that he takes the opportunity to look at proposals on the windfall tax, because the former chief executive of BP is saying that a windfall tax is justifiable. The Institute of Fiscal Studies said today that there is a case for a windfall tax. More and more people are saying that that is a way to help raise the money that is needed because, you know, look, chances do have to decide who to tax and who to shield. These are all difficult decisions. But this chancellor keeps coming back to ordinary working people, asking them to pay more in tax, and yet leaves these huge profits of the North Sea oil and gas companies untouched. And, you know, the chief executive of BP said recently that his company has more money than they know what to do with. There aren't many families or pensioners in my constituency, in the Chancellor's constituency or anywhere in this country that is saying, do you know what my big problem is at the moment? I've got more money than I know what to do with. That's what these energy companies are saying. And yet the Chancellor is saying, oh, no, we can't tax them. But as it for ordinary working people, get your checkbooks out. We need more money from you. It's just the wrong priorities. You know, obviously, defenders of, of Sunak would say the Chancellor's been dealt a really tough hand. He came in at the start of the, the pandemic, the sort of the impact that the global pandemic has had on finances. And then it's been exacerbated by kind of supply chain issues and now the, the Russian in, invasion of Ukraine. And, you know, he, he had to spend all that money, which obviously Labour supported him doing during the, the pandemic. Do you have any sympathy for what he has to do now, given, given the scale of the cost that he had to had to expand during the pandemic? Well, I'm a chess player rather than a cards player. But in chess, you've always got to look and move ahead and then think about what the other side is going to do. And I just don't think that the Chancellor is looking ahead. And I say that particularly when it comes to a long-term plan for growth, because one of the reasons we are in the problems that we are in at the moment is that the economy is just not growing in a way that it has in the past. The last time Labour were in government, the economy grew by an average of just over 2% a year. In the last 12 years, under the Conservatives, growth has been 1.5%. And in the documents yesterday that were published with the spring statement, it showed that growth has been downgraded this year and downgraded next year as well. The truth is, unless you've got an economy that is growing and bringing in those, those higher tax revenues, it is really hard to find the money to invest in public services, to keep taxes low and and to support the the economy and good jobs in all parts of the country. And we're still missing from this Chancellor a serious plan 
to ensure that those good jobs are created all across the UK. Mm. Do you think trying to, to improve growth, do you think he should have perhaps looked at maybe investment, do you think, in the spring statement to try and get that growth up? Obviously, there's inflationary pressures as well, but that growth is going to have a massive impact on the, on the kind of the, the fiscal situation in the future. Do you think there should have been more on investment? There's some practical things government can do to boost growth. Uh, First of all, I've spoken about how we need to do more to buy, make and sell more here in Britain, using government procurement, for example, to ensure that we are commissioning projects, procuring goods and services produced in this country, whether that is uh, wind turbines or steel for train tracks, etc. I've also spoken about Labour's Climate Investment Pledge, which is about seizing the huge opportunities that are out there at the moment to decarbonise the economy, whether that is carbon capture and storage, hydrogen, new nuclear, onshore and offshore wind, and using this as an opportunity to leverage in private sector investment alongside a public investment, as well as a reform of the outdated business rate system that sees small businesses and high street businesses overtaxed while their multinational online rivals are not paying their fair share of taxes. So we need to reform the tax system, we need to leverage in private sector investment, and we need to do more to buy, make and sell more here in Britain. And there was a revealing bit in the spring statement yesterday, where the Chancellor said, we need to grow our economy, and the work starts today. I mean, seriously, Tories have been in power now for 12 years, This Prime Minister and this Chancellor have been in office more than two years. They say the work starts today. What have they been doing for the last 12 years? It really is not good enough. And we're seeing in the growth numbers and in the productivity numbers, their failures. And that is why they've become a high tax party. They've become a party of high tax because they're now a party of low growth. And they're Mm. not bringing in the money through strong economic growth that we need to invest in our public services and keep taxes lower. Mm. And just finally then, you know, you, you talk about the, becoming a high tax chancellor. He's obviously, when he first came in, he was seen as being a sort of quite a pragmatic kind of safe pair of hands into the Treasury. But actually, there's criticism now that he's been too dogmatic in the way that he's trying to spend money or not spend money. And, and that's leading to potentially lots more people falling into poverty. Would you think that, you know, he's got to sort of drop that dogmatic approach and accept the sort of situation that he finds himself in and not sort of try and stick to these kind of idea of being the next Nigel Lawson? Well, the guy is not Nigel Lawson. I mean, he has raised taxes, Rishi Sunak has raised taxes more in two years than any Chancellor has in the last 50 years. I'm not sure if um, even Nigel Lawson would take too kindly to be compared to the current Chancellor. I said yesterday he's more like Ted Heath, but with an Instagram account. Ted Heath, of course, being the Prime Minister who last presided over an energy price crisis. The big problem with this Chancellor, though, is that it's all a bit of a game for him. He's thinking of the next election and he's thinking of the next leadership election in his party. And his policies are geared around that rather than what's in the national interest. So he says he wants to cut taxes. but He's not cutting taxes now when people need help and need more of their money in their pockets. He's saying he will cut them in 2024. Well, what a convenient date that is, because that will be just ahead of the next election. But the voters are not fools and they will not be taking kindly, I don't think, to a chancellor who's thinking more about the electoral timetable than he is about the 
fears and worries of ordinary families and pensioners and businesses right now. On Monday, Rishi Sunak will face the powerful cross-party Treasury Select Committee of MPs to explain the fiscal measures he's introduced in the spring statement, as well as justify why he hasn't gone further to support households through the cost of living crisis. I spoke this week to the Conservative chair of the committee, Mel Stride, to get an insight into what he will focus his questions on and what he made of Sunak's approach to the current crisis. Firstly, he's done something already, which is the $9 billion that he's thrown at trying to relieve the pressure around energy costs. And he's done that because, of course, Ofgem have recalibrated the energy cap as from April. Now, of course, what that does mean is that that cap is now fixed until the autumn. And so it won't be until the autumn, actually, that everybody will then face another potential change in the energy cap and feel an awful lot poorer as a consequence. So you could argue that he's had the luxury of being able to if luxury is the right word, wait until the autumn, see where things land, and to kept something up his sleeve to use at that point if it's necessary. Is that something that you're going to be asking him about, do you think? Yeah, ab- 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 absolutely, just those kind of, uh, kind of questions. And I think his answer will be, well, I've taken this into account and all sorts of other things, and I'm confident that we're in a prudent, sensible position, and uh, I'll react to circumstances as they occur. Yeah. I've never been shy, as he will say, to step in and intervene. And that indeed is true, if you go back to the pandemic. One of the features of this chancellor, and he was actually, ironically in a way, criticised for it, particularly by the opposition, who said, oh, well, you know, he's chopping and changing. Well, I always saw that as him being fairly fleet of foot yeah. in circumstances that rapidly changed, and he had to be fleet of foot in order to keep up with events and, and, and assess. So yeah. if he keeps coming back to the Commons with changes going forward and they're reacting to sharp changes in the terrain out there, then I won't be criticising him for that. I think that's a good sign. Yeah. There was an expectation that he might do something around universal credit or on, or on benefits. Yeah. It doesn't seem as though there was a great deal in that spring statement for people who aren't working and who are renters, perhaps. Do you think that's something that he's he's going to have to perhaps look at again, given the niche? Obviously, unemployment is quite low, so it's less of an issue. But, you know, the idea of being equitable also thrown at him that by increasing national insurance and lowering income tax, that's a less equitable way of, of taxation and the burden. Do you think that's something that the government is going to have to, to look at to, to be able to sort of, you know, service a lot of its MPs who've been looking for help for those at the lowest, at the lowest rung? I think on Monday, those kind of questions are definitely questions that he's going to be pressed very hard on, because you're right. Okay, so if you're on universal credit and you're in work, then of course you benefited from the taper changes that he brought in previously. And they were quite significant, yeah. actually, not to be dismissed. I mean, it adds up to quite a lot of money. If yeah, you're so several billion, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, and at an individual level, several hundred pounds if you're full-time on the, the, the minimum wage. However, if you're not in work and you're on UC, there's really, as far as I can see, very little in this. In fact, perhaps you point to the hardship fund for local authorities, etc., which I think is about 500 million a year, so not a huge amount in the context of what's going on. So I think that's certainly an area where we will be pushing quite hard and listening to what he has to say. That's all we've got time for this week, but you can read more from Mel Stride in our Saturday View email this weekend. Subscribe by clicking on the link in the top right corner on politicshome.com. Thanks so much to my colleague Noah Hoffman. Our editor has been Laura Silver. You can follow them on Twitter at Hoffman underscore Noah and at Laura Silver underscore. And I'm at Alan underscore Tolhurst. Thanks as well to all of this week's excellent guests, Paul Johnson from the IFS, Labour's Rachel Reeves and Treasury Committee Chair Mel Stride. But most of all, thanks again to you all for listening. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to keep up to date. If you've enjoyed it, then leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, reach out to us on Twitter at Politics Home or email us via news at politicshome.com. 
But for now, have a great weekend and be sure to listen again next week. I've been Alan Tolhurst and this has been The Rundown. <laughs>